The following podcast is recorded and produced by the Podcast Precinct in affiliation with the network at BICBP-radio.com. The Podcast Precinct. Consistency. Creativity. Culture. Say his name five times into a mirror, and the candy man, a ghost with a hook for a hand, will come and kill you. That's the urban legend most of us heard growing up. But a real-life serial killer with the same nickname was much more terrifying. This is the story of Dean Coral. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Get In Loser, we're starting a podcast. I'm Chop. And I'm Cheetah. And this week, we're diving back into the world of serial killers. With a real fucked up individual that uh, I decided to talk about because I kind of just, you know, I didn't want to go over something that's been rehashed a hundred times, you know, there's obviously the big ones like Ted Bundy. You know, guys like that. I don't want to keep doing the same shit everybody's done a hundred times. So I tried to find something that's kind of more low level. And that's when I stumbled across uh, Dean Coral, a.k.a. the Candyman. So, you know, I started reading up on him and I'm like, this guy's a sick fuck. It's perfect for us to talk about. So, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into Dean Coral, give you a little rundown of his life, you know, some of the shit that led to. You know, his crimes, and then, you know, Chop's going to give you a little rundown of his victims and all that. Obviously, before we get into anything too deep, i got to obviously give a trigger warning. If you're not good with, uh, you know, like uh, molestation, rape, that kind of stuff, torture, obviously, you know, just turn off the episode now, come back next week, and, you know, Cause next we'll, week- have, we'll have something else for you. Yeah, but if you're not into that kind of stuff, then this episode is definitely not for you because uh, those topics are very heavy in this week's episode. Hey, at least this serial killer or or uh, the serial murderer or however you ever call this, it's going to be better than our Alto Santos episode. Altimio Sanchez. Yeah. Oh, you mean when you fucked with the soundboard? I'm the fuck with the soundboard. You fucked with the soundboard. You fucked with the soundboard, and you must. Must- and the sound was all staticky, and it didn't. It sounded like shit. You know, I should have caught it then, but now because we're fifty-four episodes in. Sorry, man. You know we're better at this now. Fuck it. Uh, so, yeah, of course, it's hot in the studio. Your boy is just in a pair of shorts right now. Yeah, uh, Chop did not waste any time taking his shirt off, so that should give you a clear picture of how hot it is in this studio. I was about real close to taking my shirt off too, and that never happens. <laughs> It's like, pretty fucking hot in here. Oh, fuck. Hey, at least I get the fan. At least I get one of these fans hitting me. I mean, I got a fan hitting me, too, so that definitely helps. But uh, I feel like talking about Dean Coral on a day like today when it's just fucking hot in here might have been a mistake because... It's going to get fucking swampy in here. Yeah, it's. I'm already going to get chills all over me from reading about this guy and then mixed with being hot as fuck. It's not going to be a good combination. But, uh, yeah, before we dive into, uh, you know, giving you the rundown on this guy... I just want to reiterate, just in case you missed it the first time, uh, we will be talking about a lot of 
heavy stuff in this episode. Uh, torture comes up, uh, molestation, murder, you know, stuff like that. So if that is not something that you're comfortable with, turn away now. We'll see you next week. No biggie. But, you know, I just want to give you guys a heads up because uh, once we dive into it, there's no stopping after that, you know. It's going to just keep the ball rolling. Yo, so. yo is this worse than the one that, one um, cult thing you don't want to mention? What? Jamestown. Oh, I don't know if it's worse than Jonestown, but it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> I mean, on the grand scheme of things, I don't think... I don't know if I would put Dean Coral as one of the worst to ever do it, but he's definitely got to be on. He's got to be top ten at least. <clears throat> he's, the shit that he did was pretty fucked up. I mean, and you'll find out pretty early. You'll find out during the story why, you know, they nicknamed him the Candyman, which, uh, you know... <clears throat> was another reason that brought me to want to talk about this episode because I remember hearing the urban legend growing up that if you, you know. So you came in like f- yeah. three times? I had really shitty uh, older cousins that used to lock me in bathrooms and make me say Candyman into a mirror. Oh, so. no, no. We never said Candyman. We ne- what did we say? Oh, we said Bloody Mary. Three times on a stormy day. Today's the perfect day to say Bloody Mary. Yeah, y'all. we used to say Wait. Bloody Mary. That oh, was it. We don't want to... Chop and cheat does not occur to you say Bloody Mary three times in the mirror and no windows... Because your life can get fucked. Yeah, let's uh, let's not talk about creepy shit. I don't want to get a, uh, uh, you know, visitation from the ghost. This episode's gonna be worse, bad enough. I don't want to get Wait. the ghost up in here too. Do, do. there we've got a studio ghost. What if he wants to pull up a chair or she wants? Nah, to pull up? nah, it's it's okay. I mean, I wouldn't be against being the podcast who gets a ghost exclusive though. That'd be pretty sick, dude. That'd be kind, you know. Yo, that be that explains a lot to uh, podcast daddy. He's like, oh yeah, our episode got so fucked because uh fucking the uh po- the podcast ghost came and tried to fucking ruin us. Mm-hmm. But uh, unless my man Chop over here's got anything else he wants to talk about, real quick, we're gonna dive on into Dean Coral. Oh wait, wait, before you get into it, I'm just gonna say Dean Coral, his his birthday. That's it. Go ahead. All right. I know I'm taking uh, Cheetah's spotlight, but our, the person is Dean Arnold Carl, was American serial killer and uh, something, something. His birthday is December 24th, 1939, born in Wayne Ford, Indiana. Yeah, so uh, like Chop said, uh, Dean Coral was born December 24th, 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The first child of Mary Robinson and Arnold Edwin Coral. Coral's father was strict with his son, whereas his mother was extremely protective of Dean. The marriage of Coral's parents was marred by frequent quarreling, and the couple divorced four years after the birth of their younger son, Stanley, in 1942. Mary Coral subsequently sold the family home and relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold Coral. Coral had been drafted into the Air Force after the couple had divorced in order that her sons could retain contact with their father. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, born into a family. Parents, you know, weren't too bad. They got a divorce. Uh, but back then, I feel like, you know, it was kind of normal for dads to not really, you know, like be involved a lot, I guess, with their kids, I guess. But uh, it was very interesting that, you know, obviously his mother was 
you know, she wanted them to her fa- their father to be in their life because she, as soon as they got divorced and he moved to an Air Force base, she moved with him. You know what I mean? So that they could stay close to him. But uh, you know, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, why is it all these silver colors? Dad knows we did so far. The mother is always the good one, and the daddy was like. Well, the I mean, fucking... most of them it's like that back then. You know, it was a different time back then. You know, so. But uh, here's where here's something kind of interesting. Uh, Coral was a shy, was explained as a shy but serious child, who seldom socialized with other children and had a tendency to display concern for well-being of others. So that's very interesting. Real quick, I just want to pick that part up. I'm not going to stop every five seconds, you know, to picture the part. I just want to pick this part real quick. Man, it's your episode. That it's, uh, it's very interesting that Coral was described as a shy uh, student who really kind of kept to himself and cared about the well-being of others. Because as the story goes on, when he gets a little older, when he starts, you know, committing these crimes, we see that he's anything but caring about other people. So it's very interesting that he started off kind of, you know, Kind of, you know, just a normal kid kind of. Which we see that a lot with a lot of serial killers too. A lot of them start off kind of normal, you know. Something just snaps in them one day. But, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Um, But at the age of seven, he suffered an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever. Which was only noted in 1950 when doctors found Coral had a heart condition. He was ordered to avoid PE at school, which I'm sure helped him even more outcasted that he wasn't able to participate in gym with his friends. Uh, in 1950, Coral's parents remarried and moved to Pasadena, but the reconciliation was short-lived, and in 1953, the couple once again divorced, with the mother again retaining custody of her sons. <clears throat> the divorce was on amicable grounds, <clears throat> and both boys maintained contact with their father. Following the second divorce of Coral's parents, his mother married a traveling salesman named Jake West, and the family moved to the small town of Vidor, where Coral's half-sister Joyce was born in 1955. In Vidor, Coral's mother and stepfather started a small candy company operating from the garage of their home, and almost immediately Coral was working a day and night while still attending school. So remember that. Very remember that. That's a piece of information we we'll have to remember for later on. Coral's family had a candy shop that he worked in every single day after school. You sure was it called candy? Yes, it was a candy shop. Trust me. But, uh, as had been the case in his childhood, Coral remained somewhat of a loner in his teenage years. During his years at Vidor High School, his only major interest was the high was the high school brass band in which he paid, played trombone. Hey, I played trombone. At Vidor High School, Cora was regarded as well as a well-behaved student who achieved satisfactory grades prior to his graduation. Following his graduation from Vidor High School in 1958, the family moved to the Heights District of Houston and opened a new shop, which they, caught, which they named Pecan Prince. In 1960, in 1960, Coral moved to Indiana to live with his grandparents. He stayed in Indiana for almost two years, even forming a close relationship with a local girl, but returned to Houston in 1962 to help with his family's candy business. 
He later moved into an apartment of his own above the shop. Coral's mother divorced Jake West in 1963 and appointed Dean as vice president of the candy company. The same year, one of the teenage male employees of the candy company complained to Coral's mother that Coral had made sexual advances towards him. In response, Mary West simply fired the youth. So, boom, first time ever that somebody's come forward about, you know, Coral making sexual advances towards them. But back then, it was a different time, so it wasn't looked into. So his mother was just like, can't be true. You're fired. Get out. So, very interesting. Very yeah. interesting what could have happened if they would have believed that kid back then. Maybe he could have stopped all this. Who knows? Yeah, for the thing you talk about so far, Cheetah, uh, it almost reminded me of a bait motel kind of situation. Like how's like how's it going towards like the base motel? <clears throat> oh, my precious uh, cor- my precious Dean's not that kind of person, honey. Yeah, I mean a little bit. Him and his mom were obviously very close, so I could definitely see how you know you could see that. Uh, then uh, about a year later, after this happened with the boy at the factory, Coral was drafted into the United States Army on August tenth, nineteen sixty four. And assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic before his permanent assignment at Fort Hood, Texas as a radio repairman. Coral reportedly hated military service. He applied for a hardship discharge on the grounds that he was needed with his family's business. The Army granted his request and he was given an honorable military discharge on June 11, 1965 after 10 months of service. So, he was only in the service for 10 months. Uh, was able to get discharged because he told him that their fam- his family needed him to help at the candy company. So, you know, interesting. Interesting that he... Uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, I believe in another article I read, that was one of the first... That was one of the first places... The Army was one of the first places where he also realized that, you know... He was attracted to the other to the same sex. I believe that's where that happened. I could be wrong, but I believe that's uh, where it happened. Which is kind of crazy because I know back then a lot of times, back in that day and age, a lot of parents were sending their kids away to the army, hoping that it would get you know what I mean that would cure force the, the gay out of them, kind of yeah, like cure the gayness in their eyes. Yo, uh, speaking of uh, that, um, the policy back in the day, don't ask, don't tell policy, because. These high rank officers know some of their uh, some of the officers or their soldiers were definitely gay. Oh yeah, I mean I'm sure they knew, but it was just you know it's it's always cool to like read about people like this from like way back then because then you get to see like we get to talk about like how different times were back then to compared to how they were now. You know what I mean? Which is pretty cool. But uh, following his honorable discharge from the army. Coral returned to Houston and resumed position he had held as vice president of his family's candy business. In 1965, shortly after Coral completed his military service, the Coral Candy Company moved across the street from a Heights Elementary School. What the fuck? He was known to give free candy to local children, in particular teenage boys. So, boom, that's where the name Candyman came from. Because he would used to frequently give out candy to young boys when they were leaving school. 
And that is also a lot of the times how he lured a lot of his victims in was by promising them candy. No, I got candy, 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 candy for you. So, I mean, the whole, you know, when your parents tell you don't get in the car with a stranger, even if they get off you candy. Yeah, almost positive this is probably where it started was for people like this. Dude, I bet, I bet, I bet Dean had a fucking white band too. Oh, probably. Uh, the family company also employed a small workforce. And he was seen to behave flirtatiously towards several teenage male employees. He even installed a pool table at the rear of the factory where employees and local youths would congregate. In 1967, he befriended a 12-year-old David Brooks, then a 6th grade student, and one of the many children whom he gave free candy. So, David Brooks, this is important, because David Brooks became known as one of his teenage accomplices. David Brooks is one of the kids that used to bring used to lure other boys in for Dean to rape and torture. So David Brooks is a very important he's a very important player in this story. So uh, a little bit dive a little bit deeper into his friendship with David. Uh, Brooks initially became one of Coral's many youth's close companions the youth regularly socialized with Coral and the youths who congregated at the rear of the candy company. He also joined Coral on the regular trips he took to South Texas beaches in the company of various youths and was also given a more was given motorcycle rides by Coral and allowed to ride the bike himself. Whenever Brooks told Coral he was in need of cash, he was given money. Brooks's parents were divorced, his father lived in Houston, and his mother had relocated to Beaumont a city 85 miles east of Houston. In 1970, when he was 15, Brooks dropped out of high school and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. Whenever he visited his father in Houston, he also visited Coral, who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wished to do so. Upon Coral's urging, a sexual relationship gradually developed between the two. Coral paid Brooks to allow him to perform fellatio, you know, head on the youth <laughs> <He flushed you. laughs> and the same year he moved back to Houston and by his own later admission began regarding Coral's apartment as his second home by the time Brooks dropped out of high school Coral's mother and half-sister Joyce had moved to Colorado after the failure of their of her third marriage and the closure of, of the family candy company in 1968 Although she often talked to her eldest son on the telephone, she never saw him again. So 1968, when the candy company closed for good, that was the last time Coral's mother ever saw him. What the fuck? And this is where it's going to start to get kind of wild. Following the closure of the candy company, Coral took a job as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company where he tested electrical relay systems, he worked in this employment until the day he was, you know, dead. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Dun, 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 dun. Now, we're going to dive a little bit into uh, some of his murders. I'm going to read a little bit of this, and I'm going to hand it over to Chop so he can tell you guys, give you guys a little more detail about the victims. Um, from 1970 to 1973, Coral killed at least 28 people. All of his victims were male, aged 13 to 20, the majority of whom 
were in their mid-teens. Most victims were abducted from Houston Heights, which was then a low-income neighborhood northwest of downtown Houston. With most abductions, he was assisted by one or both of his teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley, who was another one of the kids that started hanging around with Coral and then became one of the people that would bring him children. And crazy thing about Elmer is originally he was one of the people that was involved in helping them look for some of these missing children before he became, you know, one of Coral's accomplices. What was it? What's Elmer, dude? This kid or teen? Would you like that situation? Uh, if like it pretty much, if I if I threaten you, it's like, dude, I'll I'll put you in the back of my trunk and I'll I'll be in that search party to look for you. As well, kind of situation. Well, I mean, it started as before he even got in, you know, before he even started hanging around with Coral, he was helping. He was part of search parties for looking for some of the victims. But then once he became friends with Coral, then he started bringing in these kids to Coral. To, you know what I mean? Like he was luring these kids in for him. Uh, several victims were friends of one or the other of his accomplishments and the two other victims Billy Bouch and Mally Winkle were former employees of the Coral Candy Company Coral's victims were typically lured into his van with an offer of a party or a lift and driven to his house there they were either piled with alcohol or drugs until they passed out tricked into putting on handcuffs or simply grabbed by force then, they then were stripped naked and tied to either Coral's bed or usually a plywood torture board where they were sexually assaulted, tortured, and sometimes, after several days, killed by strangulation or shooting with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Their bodies then were tied in a plastic sheeting and buried in one of four places, a rented boat shed, a beach on Boulevard Peninsula, a woodland... Uh, near Lake Sam Rayburn, where his family owned a lakeside cabin and a beach in Jefferson County. In several instances, Coral forced his victims to phone or write to their parents with explanations for their absences in an effort to allay the parents' fears for their son's safety. Coral is known to have retained keepsakes, usually keys, from his victims. So not only was he luring these kids in and killing them, torturing them, but he was covering his tracks by making these kids either phone, call home, or send a letter to their parents telling them where they were so they wouldn't be worried. Man, that's that's some fucking gangster ass shit right there. And um, his his trophy wasn't like like how Jeffrey Donham had several body parts or how uh so and so had. Uh, made a letter face out. You really thought you were going somewhere with that one, huh? Yeah, no, no. I was um his uh his trophies was their keys. Yeah, I literally just said that. I was just, I was really late reading version that. Um, I was trying to put my two cents in. Uh huh. Don't <laughs> worry, you'll get your chance in a second. Uh, during the years in which he abducted and murdered young men, Coral often changed addresses. However, until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of '73. He always lived in or close to Houston Heights. Coral killed his first known victim, an 18-year-old college freshman, Jeffrey Conan, 
on September 25th, 1970. You want to, uh, can you give us a little rundown of Conan? I mean, if you don't mind. I'm just, <clears throat> I, was, I was just reading the information you just texted me and... Try Come to... on, man. I, I gave you one job. I just set you up perfectly and you're not even ready. Wait, wait, wait. I, 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 let me get off. Tell me his first victim? Yes. All right. September 25th. Uh, Jeffrey Cohen, 18, a, a student at the University of Texas, ducked it while he was hiking from hiking from Austin to uh, Bestwood Place, District of Houston. He was burned, no, buried at High Island Beach. Yes, there we go. And then uh, David Brooks led police to the body of Jeffrey Conan on August 10th, 1973. The body was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists subsequently deduced that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a cloth gag which had been placed in his mouth. The body was found buried beneath a layer of lime wrapped in plastic, naked, bound, and bound hand and foot, suggesting he had also been violated. Around the time of Conan's murder, David Brooks interrupted Coral in the act of assaulting two teenage boys whom he'd strapped to a plywood torture board. Coral promised Brooks a car in return for his silence. Brooks accepted the offer, and Coral bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. Brooks was later told by Coral that the two youths had been murdered and he was offered $200 for any boy he could lure to Coral's apartment. Holy shit, 200, 200 times that by 27? I'll come back to that answer in a second. Oh, my God. But, yeah, basically, David Brooks caught Coral in the act. And to keep him quiet, he offered him a, sh- a Corvette. I mean, what kid in that day and age at that time is not going to fucking... Except the Corvette, you know what I mean? That's, of yeah, course. Yeah, Corvette, um, what year did you say it was? 1973? Uh, 1970? Yeah. 1970? 1973. Wait. Oh, no, 1970, my bad. 1970. 1970 Corvette, those were probably, uh, don't get me wrong, y'all, um, about eight, eight to $10,000, brand new. And, um, we're, how Cheetah says he, he offered Brooks two hundred dollars for for the to lure these guys in. And I said about twenty seven. If they were if, if they were all lured, he made additional uh, fifty four hundred dollars on top of that. Fifty four hundred dollars is not a lot of money now, but back, back then it was holy shit. I mean, you're a young kid Bucks. having that much in a fucking brand new Corvette. I mean, obviously this kid, you know, what I mean, in this. That David Brooks kid, you got to understand, he looked at Coral as kind of a father figure. You know what I mean? So, of course, he's not going to go against him. He's giving him all the shit. Why would he? You know what I mean? Not saying that it's right, but yo, I mean, um, I can understand where the kid was coming from. Yo, if you were Brooks, with your knowledge now, would you accept his terms and conditions? Probably not. I'd probably fucking kill him right there. Or right uh, there. or just go, to, or or as soon as he give you that Corvette, do you go to a, to the police? Hey, dude, um... This dude's fucked up, man. Yeah, maybe. But then I'd have to give the Corvette back because the cops would know. Fuck. Yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know what I'll do in that situation. 
Yeah, I don't I, know. Because they'll say uh, money talks, bullshit walks or something? Yeah, but I mean, I feel like that situation is kind of different when there's, you know, he's basically buying your silence to not tell the cops he's raping and torturing Oh, it's pretty, it's, pretty much, it's pretty much, if you tell me to do that, that's pretty much blackmail right there. A form of blackmail. I mean, yeah, basically. Because then he knows, Coral always knows he's got something on Brooks. If Brooks ever turned on him, he could be like, well, you were taking my money to lure these kids here. So you're just as guilty. Yo, dude, this court, this, this candy man, dude, from just listening to for what you're saying, he's kind of a smart person. He's a scumbag, but he was he was fucking genius about it. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. He knew the perfect way to cover his tracks. It's like most of these silly killers. They're, they're known... They might not be That's the-, the thing that a lot of people don't like to talk about because of how shitty serial killers are and, like, how bad their crimes are. In a lot of cases, in a lot of the cases of serial killers, a lot of them are fucking geniuses, dude. Except for that Like, fuck- they know exactly how to cover their tracks, and they do it perfectly. Except for the idiots say, hey, I'm over here. I did this. I did yeah, this. Yeah, well, you got idiots like BTK who literally turned himself in because he's a fucking idiot. Yo, who was that, who's that one killer that they kind of discovered who it is now? Zodiac killer? Yeah. They don't really know who it is. They'll never fucking know. Don't listen to them. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just, yeah, everyone's hating. Like, yeah, we should hate on serial killers, but... I mean, obviously, I'm not condoning what they did. They're fucking scumbags, but a lot of them were genius, dude. They knew exactly what they were doing and how to do it spe- and spe- how to get away with it. Especially just think about it. Some of them got a... I mean, like, guys like fucking Golden State, dude. He went fucking, like, 40 years without ever being caught. Yo, like, we- he, he knew exactly what he was doing. And um, especially Jim Jones, he had he had over a thousand people follow him. Well, I mean that's a whole different story. You know, that's a that's, that's a an organized religion. But it's still story. But still, it's yeah. still it's still a massive murder in America's history. Yeah, at that time. But, but anyway, it's not about Jim Jim Jones. It's about the man Candy Killer, Candy Man. But uh, on December fifteenth, nineteen seventy. David Brooks lured two 14-year-old boys named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally held near Houston Heights to Coral's Yorktown apartment. Glass was an acquaintance of Brooks, who at Brooks' behest had previously visited Coral's apartment. Both youths were tied to opposite sides of Coral's torture board and subsequently raped, strangled, and buried in a boat shed Coral had rented on November 17th. December 15, Danny Yates, 14, uh, lured with his friend James Glass, was eventually rallied by David Brooks to Coors Yorktown apartment. December 15, James Glass, 14, and the compliments of Coral, who knew David Brooks, he, he and his friends were standalone before being buried in the coral bullshed. Six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates, on January 30th, 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage boys, teenage brothers named Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking to a bowling alley. Both boys were enticed into Coral's van and were driven to an apartment that Coral had moved into at 3200 Magnum Road where they were raped, tortured, and strangled before Brooks and Coral buried them in the boat shed. 
Between March and May of 1971, Coral killed three more boys between the ages of 13 and 16. As with the Waldrop brothers, all lived in Houston Heights. Two of these victims, David Hillgeist and Mally Winkle, were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29, 1971, as had been the case with parents of other victims of Coral's. Both sets of parents launched a frantic search for their sons. One of the youths who had voluntarily offered to distribute posters to parents to the parents had printed a offering printed offering a reward for information leading to the boys' whereabouts was fifteen year old Elmer Wayne Henley. A lifelong friend of Hillgeist, the youth pinned the posters around the heights and attempted to pleasure reassure Hillgeist's mother that there may be an innocent explanation for the boy's absence. January 30th, Donald Wardrop, 15, uh, finished on his way down to the bowling alley, according to Brooks. Uh, according to Brooks, Donald's father, who was a building, who was a building, was working on an apartment next to Corey at the time that Donald and his brother were murdered. January 30th, Jerry Wardrop, 13, the youngest of the the Corey's victim, Corey's victim, he and his brothers were stranded, buried in Coral's boat shed. March 30th, no, March March 9th. Randall Havad, 15, disapproved, disappeared on his way home from his job at as a gas station attendant. He was shot in the head and buried in Coral's boat shed. What the fuck? All boat sheds. Yeah. R- reminds, uh, uh, remains, uh, pretty much they found his remains in October 2008. May twenty, May twenty, uh, uh, twenty ninth. Dave Hengans, thirteen, one of Henry's earliest childhood friend. He was last seen along his friends Morrow Wink climbing into a white van. Oh, there's a fucking white van I told you about. What the fuck? Uh, May twenty third. Uh, no, May twenty ninth. Gregory Milton Walk Winker, 16, a former employee of Coal Candy Company and boyfriend of Randall, Randall Heaven's sister, he disappeared on his way to visit a local swim pool August 16. Ruby Aramba Watson, 17, left his house to visit. Uh, a movie theater on the afternoon of August 17th. When uh, Warson last called his mother to tell her he's spending the evening with Brooks and was gashed, scraped, and buried once again. Coral's bullshit. Oh, you don't know. 
Yeah, that's from 1971. Jesus. Kind of just went off, man. Well, uh, yeah, so on August 17th, 1971, Coral and Brooks encountered 17-year-old acquaintance of Brooks named Reuben Watson walking home from a movie theater in Houston. Brooks persuaded Watson to attend a party at Coral's address. The youth agreed and was taken to Coral's home where he was subsequently strangled and buried in the boat shed. Now, in the winter of 1971, this is when Elmer Wayne Henley comes back into the picture. Brooks was introduced introduced Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean Coral. <clears throat> Henley may have been lured to Coral's address as an intended victim. However, Coral evidently decided Henley would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, $200 for any boy he could lure to his apartment informing Henley that he was involved in a sexual slavery ring operating from Dallas. Henley accepted Coral's offer and initially participated in the abductions, <clears throat> abductions of the victims, then later actively... Uh, oh, wait, hold on. Then actively, later actively participated in many of the killings. According to Henley, the first abduction he par- participated in occurred at 1925 Schuler Street, an address Coral had moved to in February of 1972, although Brooks later claimed that Henley became involved in the abductions of the victims while Coral resided at an address where he had act- occupied prior to Schuler. If Henley's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March of 1972. In the statement Henley gave to the police following his arrest, the coroner, the youth stated that he and Coral picked up a youth at the corner of 11th and Studewood and lured him to Coral's house on the promise of smoking some marijuana. Henley duped the youth into donning a pair of handcuffs before leaving him alone with Coral. The identity of this victim is not conclusively known, although it is possible the youth was Willard Branch, a 17-year-old casual acquaintance of Henley and Brooks who disappeared on February 9, 1972, or, yeah, 1972, and was found buried in the boat shed. Again. God damn. He really loves that boat shed. <laughs> Fuck it. Then, uh, one month later, on March 24, 1972... Henley, Brooks, and Coral encounter an 18-year-old acquaintance of Henley's named Frank Anthony Acquire, leaving a restaurant on Yale Street where the youth worked. Henley called Acquire over to, the, to Coral's van and invited the youth to Coral's apartment on the promise that he could drink beer and smoke some marijuana with the trio. Acquire agreed and followed the pair to Coral's home in his Rambler, Inside Coral's house, Acquire was given marijuana and then tricked into donning a pair of handcuffs before Coral pounced on the youth. Henley left Acquire alone with Coral. Henley later claimed to have having discovered Coral torturing the youth, upon which Coral informed him that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same with Acquire. Henley was again paid for the luring the victim to Coral's home and subsequently assisted Coral and Brooks in a choir's burial at High Island Beach. Despite the revelations that Coral was, in reality, killing the boys whom he and Brooks had assisted in abducting, Henley nonetheless became an active participant in the abductions and murders within one month 
on April 20, 1972, he assisted Coral in the abduction of another youth, a 17-year-old friend of his named Mark Scott. Scott was grabbed by force and fought furiously against attempts by Coral to secure him to the torture board, even attempting to stab his attackers. However, Scott saw Henley pointed a gun towards him, and according to Brooks, Mark just gave up. Scott was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as a choir, rape, torture, strangulation, and burial at the High Island Beach. According to Brooks, Henley was especially sadistic in his participation of the murders committed at 1920, at 925 Schuler before Coral vacated the address on June 26th. Henley assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction and murder of two youths named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLone. You got any uh, information on Billy Balch and Johnny DeLone? Yeah, as soon as you get done in 1972, I'm just going to just ramble all the names again. Uh, in Brooks' confession, uh, he stated that both youths were tied to Coral's bed, and after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled Balch, then shouted, Hey, Johnny, and shot DeLone in the forehead, with the bullet exiting through the youth's ear. DeLone then pleaded with Henley, Wayne, please don't, before he too was strangled. During the time Coral lived at Schuler, the trio lured a 19-year-old youth named Billy Rigdinger to the house. Rigdinger was tied to the plywood board, tortured and abused by Coral. Brooks later, uh, Brooks later claimed he persuaded Coral to allow Rigdinger to be released, and the youth was allowed to leave the residence. On another occasion at Schuler, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious. As he entered the house, Coral then tied Brooks to his bed and assaulted the youth reportedly, repeatedly before releasing him. Despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Coral in the abductions of the victims. So, this is where the first slip-up comes. Brooks convinces Coral to let him, to um, let them get rid of a guy, to let a guy go. Uh-uh, you don't let no motherfucker go. And then because of this, obviously, is what, it's obviously why um, Coral, hold on, I lost my spot. It's obviously why Coral raped Brooks, because, you know, he went against him, basically. Uh, Hold on, I'm trying to find my spot. I lost my spot. Oh, okay. Uh... Yep, okay, I found it. My bad. All right, all right. Uh, After vacating the Schuler residence, Coral moved to an apartment on Westcott Towers where he is known to have killed a further four victims. The first victim killed at Westcott Towers, Stephen Sickman, was killed on July 20th. Two further Heights boys were abducted and murdered on October 3rd, and a 19-year-old youth named Richard Kepner was murdered on November 12th. Altogether, a minimum of nine teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November of 1972, five of whom were buried at the High Island Beach and four inside Coral's boat shed. February 9th, Willie Rusty Brooks Jr., 17, the son of a Houston police officer whom father died of a heart attack in the search of him. 
That's fucking crazy, dude. You, like, like, just say, just an example. Your daddy's a cop, and he's trying to find, trying to find you. He dies a heart attack. You could put that. You could kind of put that as another uh, tally on uh, the Candy Man, kinda, but not technically. Oh, let me get back on saying um, for searching him. Birch was created before he he was shot and buried in Core Boatshed. Remains identified July 1985. March 24th, Frank Agan, 18. Agan was been engaged to marry Roses of Williams, who that pre- present in Coral's house speak in the fatal conflict between he- uh, Harry and Coral. He was strangled and buried at the High Island Beach, April 20th. Mark Scott, 17, a friend of both Harry, Henry, Harry, and Brooks, who was killed by Coral Street up, according to Harold, Scott was strangled and buried at High Island, although his remains have not yet been found. May 21st, Johnny Detone, 16, a Heights youth who last seen with his friend walking to the local store, he he was shot in the head and strangled by Harry, or Henry, <clears throat> May 21st. Billy Butcher, or Butchon, 17, a former employee of Coors Candy Company, Butcher was strangled by Henry and buried at High Island Beach, July 20th. Steve Stickman, 17, Stickman was last sleeping a party headed into the heights. He suffered numerous, uh, several fraction ribs before he was strangled with a nylon coral and buried in the boat shed. Remains, remains identified April 2011. October 3rd, Willie J. Simcox, or however you ever say his name, Fourteen, a doctor when walking to the Hampton Junior High School's uh, Simcott attended to call his mom, the Coral resident, before the phone was disconnected. He was strangled and buried in the Coral boat shed. Hey, finally get the boat shed again. October 3rd, Richard Hanbaugh, 13, last seen aside with his friend and, well, well, in a white van parked outside Heights grocery store, he was shot in the mouth and strangled by Coral Wiscock Town Address, November 12th. Richard Kippen, 19, uh, victim uh, on his way to call his fiance from a payphone. He was strangled and buried at High Island Beach Remains. Identified September 1983. Damn. Mm-hmm. That's good. Now, it's about to get real crazy. All right, let me find out where I was. Okay. Uh, 
On January 20th, 1973, Coral moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving into the address, he had killed a 17-year-old youth named Joseph Lyles before vacating the apartment and moving to 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena on March 7th. No known victims were killed from February to June 3rd of 1973, Although Coral is known to have suffered a hydrocele in early 1973, which may account for his sudden lull in killings. Nonetheless, from June, Coral's rate of killings increased dramatically. Henley later compared the acceleration in the frequency of killings to being like a bloodlust, adding that Coral needed to would make reflex movements and state that he needed to do a new boy. Between June 4th and July 7th, 1973, a further three victims were murdered and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. And on July 12th, a 17-year-old youth named John Sellers was murdered and buried at High Island Beach. In July of 1973, David Brooks married his pregnant fiancé and Henley temporarily became Coral's sole procurer of victims, assisting in the abduction and the murder of a further three Heights youths between the ages of 15 and 18 between July 19th and July 25th. According to Henley, these three abductions were the only three that occurred after uh, after his becoming an accomplice to Coral, in which David Brooks was not a participant. One of these three victims was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn, and the other two abducted together on July 25th were buried in the boat shed. On August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Dremela. Dremela was abducted while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Coral's home, where he was tied to Coral's torture board, raped and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. David Brooks later described Dremel as a small blonde boy whom he had bought a pizza before the youth was attacked. So you want to go over those victims real quick before we... Yeah, before we dive down anymore. Before we dive into what happened to, uh, to old uh, Candyman. Okay. <clears throat> February 1st, Joseph Lison, 17. According to of Cor, who lived on the same street as Brooks... He was seen by Brooks to the to be grabbed it grabbed it by Carl at Wet Road and Strangle buried at Jefferson County Beach. I think I heard of Jefferson County Beach. But anyway, uh, June fourth, Billy Ray Lawler fifteen of a friend of Henry's who phoned his father to ask if he could go fishing with some friends, air quote. <laughs> oh, my God. He was he was kept alive by Carl for four days before he was killed and buried at Lake Sam Rayborn, or, or Raybun. June 15, Ray Blackbun. Oh, that's weird. Uh, a twenty, a twenty, a twenty-year-old, a male, a, a married male, who was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 
who wish will hiking hitchhiking from the heights to see his newborn. He was strangled at Coors uh, Long Drive per- residence, buried at Sam Lake Sam Re- a born a bon a burn. Uh, July six, July seven. Homer Garcia, fifteen, met Henry, and both youth were rolling on the Bell Drive school uh, driving school. He was shot in the head and the chest and buried at Lake Sam Reborn or uh, uh, re, Reborn uh, Burn. July twelfth. John Sellett, seventeen. And an orange youth killer two days before his 18th birthday. Seller was shot in the chest and buried at High Island Beach. He was the only victim to be buried fully clothed. Hmm, that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of goes along with what Henley was saying about how the last few victims, they called him kind of like a bloodlust, like... You know, Cora was basically saying, like, I have to kill these boys. Like, I need to kill again. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's that's also common with a lot of serial killers, too. Once they get near the end of their run, the last couple killings are nothing like their other ones. Because at that point, they just need to do it. Like, it's it's a need. Like, they need to do it. Yeah, it's not like... Like, it's kind of like an addiction. Like, they need to fill that addiction by killing somebody again. All right. Uh, July 19, Michael Tony Barskun? Bars- Butchin? Fifteen, Coral had killed his older brother Billy, the previous year. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Sunburn, burn, or no Rayburn. <clears throat> July twenty fifth, uh, uh, Marty Jones, eighteen. Jones was last seen along with his friends and flatmate Chess Corbett walked towards. Corn's apartment with compliments of Henry. Didn't really kill him, but he, I think he did get killed. Uh, July 25th, Charlie Char- Char- Clay Carbo, 17, a, f- a school friend of Henry's, whose wife was pregnant at the time of his murder. His body, shot twice in the head, was found in the boat shed. All right, real quick. Let's. That's. Marty Jones and Charles Carey Cobble, those were the two that were abducted together, and they were killed on the same day. But let's point out the fact that this kid was 17, and he was already married, and his wife was, his girl was pregnant. Back then, that wasn't, you know what I mean? That wasn't a weird thing. That was normal back then. It was it's, normal. It was just... It's it w- crazy how, like, nowadays it's kind of, like, frowned upon, but back then it was normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's very interesting. And Dean... The Candyman, Coral's last victim, August 3rd, James Dahan Dremela. Dremela, 13, the son of the seven-day of Avenant Drahana, was last seen riding his bike in the South Houston. He last called his parents to tell them that he was at a party across town, air quotes. Mm-hmm. All right, let's... uh. Let's dive into this and find out what happened to our boy Candyman, huh? Oh, yeah, huh? 
like that motherfucker. All right, here it goes. On the evening of August 17, 1973, Henley, age 17, invited a 19-year-old youth named Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Coral's Pasadena house. Curley, who was intended to be Coral's next victim, accepted the offer. David Brooks was not present at the time. The two youths arrived at Coral's house and sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. Henley and Curley then drove back to Houston Heights and Curley parked his vehicle close to Henley's home. Henley exited the vehicle and walked towards the home of 15-year-old Rhonda Williams, who had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and had decided to temporarily leave home until her father became sober. Henley invited Rhonda to spend the evening at Coral's home. Rhonda agreed and climbed into the back seat of Curly's Volkswagen, the trio drove towards Coral's Pasadena residence. Now, here's where this is very interesting, because if we remember from the stuff that we've learned about Coral thus far, he never went after females, ever. That wasn't his thing. He liked boys. You know, he his only victims were teenage boys. He liked to go after boys. So, you're going to find out in a minute how Coral reacted to you know, finding out that Henley, who was supposed to be, you know, his partner in crime, basically, what, how he reacted to Henley bringing a woman to his house. So this is where things get very interesting. I, I was, uh, I was, I had to try something real quick. Um, yeah, what you were saying about his last victim, was like 13 years old, was sniffing paint and, well, this was intended to be his final victim. Uh, no, I, I was I was uh, saying Stephen Payne and buying sandwiches at your birth. Oh, some something about Stephen Payne. Why you get your munchies off of? You really just asked me to stop so you could plug literally nothing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> at approximately three a.m. on the morning of August eighth, nineteen seventy-three, Henley and Curly arrived back at Coral's home, accompanied by Rhonda Williams. Coral was furious that Henley had brought a girl along, telling him in private that he had ruined everything. Henley explained that Williams had argued with her father that evening and did not wish to return home. Coral appeared to calm down and offered the three teenagers beer and marijuana. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking the marijuana as Coral, drinking beer, watched them intently. After approximately two hours of drinking and smoking, Henley, Curley, and Williams passed out. And now we're on to, from here on, is what happened in the final moments of Dean Coral's life. This is it. So, Henley awoke to find Coral snapping handcuffs onto his wrists. His ankles had also been bound together, Curly had Williams lay beside Henley, secured bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape, and lying face down on the floor. Curly had also been stripped naked. Coral told Henley that he was furious he had brought a girl to his house and explained that he was going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Curly. He repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest, 
then dragged Henley into the kitchen, into his kitchen, and placed a twenty-two caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley calmed Coral, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Williams and Curly if Coral released him. Coral agreed and untied Henley, then carried Curly and Williams into his bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of the torture board. Curly on her stomach, Williams on her back. Coral then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Williams' clothes, insisting that he would rape and kill Curly, Henley would do likewise to Williams. Henley began cutting away Williams' clothes as Coral undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point. Curly began writhing and shouting at Will- as Williams, whose gag Henley had removed, lifted her head and asked Henley, Is this for real? To which Henley answered, Yes. Williams then asked Henley, Are you going to do anything about it? Henley then asked Coral whether he might take Rhonda into another room. Coral ignored him, and Henley then grabbed Coral's pistol, shouting, You've gone far enough, Dean. Coral approached Henley, saying, Kill me, Wayne. Henley stepped back a few paces as Coral continued to advance upon him, shouting, You won't do it. Henley fired at Coral, hitting him in the forehead. Coral continued to lurch towards him, and Henley fired a further two rounds at him, hitting him in the left shoulder. Coral spun around and staggered out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway. Henley fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as Coral slid down the wall into the hallway outside the room where he, where the two other teenagers were bound. Coral died where he fell, his naked body lying face down towards the wall. After the shooting, after shooting Coral, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board, and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Henley suggested to Curly and Williams that they should simply leave, to which Curly replied, No, we should call the police. Henley agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena police in Coral's telephone directory. So, in the final moments, Henley got a conscious, I guess, and decided that he wasn't going to let Dean, you know, go on any longer. And he had to put a stop to it, so he killed him. Yo, um, I I get it. He finally snapped. But what if Henry was falling in love with this chick? I don't think he fell in love with this chick in 30 seconds. Oh. I think he just realized what was going on, and he knew that it was wrong. Because we're going to find out in a second what I, what happened. <clears throat> but, yeah, Candyman, Dean Coral, the guy responsible for at least 28 deaths. Not just deaths, but murders, tortures, and rapes. Died naked, face down, in a hallway of his house. Killed by his accomplice, Wayne, Elmer Wayne Henley. This is what happened after. At 8.24 a.m. on August 8, 1973, Henley placed a call to the Pasadena police. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. In his call, Henley blurted to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. 
Henley gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Curly, Williams, and Henley waited upon Coral's porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Coral that he had done that, killed by shooting, four or five times. Minutes later, a Pasadena police car arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive, the three teenagers sitting on the porch outside the house, and the officer noted a 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Henley informed the officer that he was the individual who had made the call and indicated that Coral was lying dead inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams, and Curley inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Coral's dead body inside the hallway. The officer returned to the car, read Henley's Miranda rights. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Curley later informed director detectives before the police officer had arrived at Lamar Drive. Henley had informed him, I could have gotten $200 for you. Crazy. What the fuck? Yeah, crazy. You know, you know I get the fucking 28 murder sprees. But for a while, what if Henry had this build up in his chest for a while? Well, I mean, I'm sure he knew it was wrong. That's probably why, you know, in that moment, something just snapped at him. He's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't let him keep getting away with this. Because you know why? Because at his moment, he had uh, the idea of go after uh, teen boys and young adults. Well, I think it's the fact that, you know, Coral kind of turned on Henley. He was so pissed at him about bringing a girl there. You know, I think maybe Henley was like, this is how I get back at Coral. This is how I finally get one up on him. Not only do I kill him, but now, you know, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe Henley thought maybe by doing this he'd give the family a little peace, maybe. I don't know. You know, it's it's tough to tell because, I, you know, we'll never really know why he did it or why he felt like he should do it. I, I, I think that right it's there. It's kind of just speculation at this point. Speculation. I think he just, he wanted to be... Because he, cause he knew he was going to die, Henry. It's like he wanted to ask for his forgiveness before he goes up. Maybe. But uh, I'm going to go over uh, Henley's confession here. Uh, in custody, Henley explained that for almost three years, he and David Brooks had helped procure teenage boys, some of whom were their own friends, for Coral, who had raped and murdered them. Coral had paid $200 for each victim he or Brooks were able to lure to his apartment. Henley gave a statement admitting he assisted Coral in several abductions and murders of teenage boys, informing police that Coral had buried most of his victims in a boat shed in southwest Houston and the others at Lake Sam Rayburn and High Island Beach. Police were initially skeptical of Henley's claims, assuming the sole homicide of the case was that of Coral, which they had ascribed to being the result of drug-fueled fisticuffs that had turned deadly. Henley was cr- quite insistent, however, and upon his recalling the name of three boys, Cobble, Hillegeist, and Jones, whom he and David Brooks had procured for Coral, the police accepted that there was something to his claims, as all three teenagers were listed as missing at Houston Police Headquarters. <clears throat> David Hillegeist, who had been reported missing in the summer of 1971, the other two boys have been missing for just two weeks. Moreover, the floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting, 
Police also found a plywood torture board measuring 7 by 3 feet with handcuffs in each corner. Also found at Coral's address were large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic, and the same type of the same type used to cover the floor, a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cells to give increased volume, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Of rope. The Ford Ecoline van belonging to Coral parked in the driveway conveyed a similar impression. The rear windows of the van were sealed by opaque blue curtains. In the rear of the vehicle, police found a coil of rope a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. Another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the the sides was also found in Coral's backyard. Inside this crate were several strands of human hair. Henley agreed to accompany police to Coral's boat shed in southwest Houston, where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found. Inside Coral's boat shed, police found a half-stripped car, which turned out to have been stolen from a used car lot in March, a child's bike, empty bags of lime, and a box full of teenage boys' clothing. Police began digging through the soft, shell-crusted, shell-crushed earth of the boat shed and soon uncovered the body of a young blonde-haired teenage boy lying face up and encased in clear plastic, buried beneath a layer of lime. Police continued excavating through the earth of the shed, unearthing the remains of more victims in varying stages of decomposition. Most of the bodies were found, found were wrapped in a thick clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, others strangled, the ligature still wrapped tightly around their necks. All of the victims found had been sodomized and most victims were bore evidence of sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out. Genitals had been chewed. Objects had been inserted into their rectums and glass rods had been shoved into their urethra and smashed. Cloth rags had also been inserted into the victim's mouth and adhesive tape wound around their faces to muffle their lives to muffle their screams. In some instances, Coral had also castrated his live victims. Severed genitals were found inside sealed plastic bags on August 8, 1973. A total of eight corpses were uncovered at the boat shed. What the fuck, man? Yeah, I told you, this guy's a sick fuck. Holy fuck, he's forcing the fucking bike path rapist. Yeah, he's fucking sick, dude. Accompanied by his father, David Brooks presented himself at the Houston Police Station on the evening of August 8, 1973 and gave a statement denying any participation in the murders, but admitting to having known that Coral had raped and killed two youths in 1970. On August 9, 1973, police accompanied Henley to Lake Sam Rayburn in San Augustine County, where Henley told police had told police that Coral had buried Four victims he had killed that year. Two additional bodies were found in in shallow graves. Police found nine additional bodies in the boat shed on August 9th, 1973. David Brooks gave a full confession that evening, admitting to being present at several killings and assisting in several burials. 
Although he continued to deny any direct participation in the murders, he agreed to accompany police to High Island Beach to assist in the search for the bodies of the victims. On August 10, 1973, Henley again accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where two more bodies were found just 10 feet apart. As with the two bodies found the previous day, both victims had been tortured and severely beaten, particularly around the head. That afternoon, both Henley and Brooks were accompanied. Brooks accompanied police to High Island Beach, leading police to the shallow graves of two more victims. On August 13, 1973, both Henley and Brooks again accompanied police to High Island Beach, where four more bodies were found, making a total of 27 known victims, the worst killing spree in American history at the time. Henley initiated, initially insisted that there were two more bodies to be found inside the boat shed and also that bodies of two more boys had been buried at High Island Beach in 1972. At the time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder in the United States, exceeding the 25 murders attributed to Juan Corona from California, who was arrested in 1971 for killing 25 men. The Houston mass murders, as they became known, hit the headlines all over the world. Even Pope Paul commented on the atrocious nature of the... of the... Oh, fuck, I lost my point. Of the crimes, and offered sympathy to the relatives of those who had died. Police were inundated with the inquiries regarding missing boys from parents across the United States. Families of Coral's victims were highly critical of the Houston Police Department, which had been quick to list the boys as runaways who had not been considered worthy of any major investigation. The family of the murdered youths were asserted that the police should have noted an insidious trend in the pattern of disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. Other family members complained the police had been dismissive to their adamant insistence that their sons had no reasons to run away from home. The father of the Waldrop boys complained that the Houston police chief had simply told him, you know your boys are runaways. The mother of Mally Winkle stated, you don't run away from home with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. By April of 1974, 21 of Coral's victims had been identified with all but four youths having either lived in or had close connections to Houston Heights. Two more, two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985, one of whom was Richard Kepner, who also lived in Houston Heights. The other youth, Willard Branch, lived in the Oak Forest District of Houston. Dean Coral and his accomplices are known to have killed a minimum of 28 teenagers and young men between 19, September 1970 and August 1973, although it is suspected that the true number of victims may be 29 or more. To date, a total of 26 of his victims have been identified, and the identity of a 27th victim whose body has never been found is conclusively known. All of the victims had been both killed had been killed by either shooting strangulation or a combination of both holy fuck yeah and then uh just a little you know little footnotes for uh, this case i don't want to get too far because we're already a little bit over time 
But uh, at Henley's trial in 1974, the Harris County Medical Examiner raised questions as to whether John Sellers was actually a victim of Dean Coral. Sellers, a U.S. Marine, had been reported missing on July 12, 1973, had been killed by four gunshot wounds to the chest fired from a rifle, whereas all of Coral's other known victims had either been shot with the same pistol that Henley had used to kill Coral or strangled. Moreover, Sellers' car had been found burned out one week after the youth had disappeared. However, Henley and Brooks had led police to Sellers' grave on High Island Beach, and the youth's body was found was bound with a rope as other victims had been. Uh, on October 17, 2008, uh, one of the boys was identified as Randall Lee Harvey, a Heights teenager who had been reported missing on March 11, 1971, two days after he had disappeared. Harvey, who had been shot through the eye, was wearing a navy blue jacket with red lining, jeans and lace-up boots. A plastic orange pocket comb was also found alongside his body. Fucking crazy. Fucking nuts. In the confession given by Elmer Wayne Henley on August 9th, 1973, the youth had stated that victim Mark Scott had been strangled and buried at High Island. David Brooks had also stated in his confession that Scott, who was well known to both of Coral's accomplices, was likely buried at High Island. The body of 15th victim disinterred from the boat shed was mistakenly identified by Dr. Joseph as being the body, being that of Mark Scott. In January 1994... In 2010, Henley disputed the identification of a victim buried in the boat shed as being Mark Scott and reiterated his claim to the interviewer that Scott had been buried at High Island in the sand fetal position head up at High Island. Uh, As a result of Henley's claims, DNA tests on the body identified as Scott were tested against samples of DNA from Scott's family. In March 2011, DNA analysis confirmed that the victim known as ML733355 had also been misidentified, and in April the victim was identified as Stephen Sickman, a 17-year-old youth who was last seen walking down West 34th Street shortly after midnight on July 20th, 1972, and who was murdered at Coral's Westcott Towers address, Sickman's mother had reported her son missing shortly after his disappearance, but police had been unwilling to conduct a search for the youth, telling the mother that the youth was 17 years old and that unless they found a body, there was nothing they could do to assist her. Had Henley not been adamant in his assertion that the body of Mark Scott had been misidentified, Sickman would have never been conclusively confirmed as a victim of Corals. All six bodies directly linked to the Houston mass murders found at High Island have been identified as Henley's claim that the victim known as ML733355 was not Mark Scott has been proven to be correct. A strong suspicion remains that the body of Mark Scott remains buried at High Island. Uh, As far as other additional victims they think could be tied to Dean Coral, uh, 42 boys had vanished within the Houston area since 1970. The police were heavily criticized for curtailing their search for further victims once mass killer Juan Corona Macareb 
record for having the most victims had been surpassed. After finding the 26th and 27th bodies tied together at High Island Beach, the search was called off. A curious feature about his final discovery was the was the presence of two extra bones, an arm bone and a pelvis, in the grave, indicating at least one additional victim awaiting discovery. The search for more bodies at the beach was abandoned on August, 19, August 13, 1973, despite Henley's insistence that there were two more bodies buried on the beach in 1972. So, yeah, that, uh... That's the fucked up story about, uh, you know, Dean Coral and fucking Elmer Wayne Henley and David Brooks. God damn. But real quick before I go. I know I said that was quick before, but now this real quick. On uh, August 13th, a grand jury convened in Harris County to hear evidence against Henley and Brooks. The first witnesses to testify were Rhonda Williams and Tim Curley who testified the events of August 7th and 8th leading to the death of Dean Coral. Another witness who testified to this experience at the hands of Dean Coral was Billy Riddinger. After listening for over six hours of testimony from various people, the jury indicted Henley on three murder charges and Brooks on one count. Bail was set as a, at $100,000. The district attorney did request that Henley undergo a psychiatric examination to deduce whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. But as an attorney, Charles Medler opposed the decision, stating the move would violate Henley's constitutional rights. By the time the grand jury had completed his investigation, Henley had been indicted for a total of six murders and Brooks for four murders. Henley was not charged with the death of Dean Coral, which was ruled self-defense. So, God damn, that that fucking one was a little roller coaster over here. Yeah, crazy man, crazy, crazy, crazy. Man, um, Henley did try to appeal, put an appeal. Uh, he was awarded a retrial in December of 1978. Uh, he was tried again in June of 1979 and was again convicted of six murders. On June 27, 1979, again sentenced to con- six consecutive 99-year terms. So, that's like, that's like that's over a thousand. Crazy. Yep. Uh, David, tri- David Brooks' trial lasted less than one week. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they reached a verdict. He was found guilty <clears throat> of murder on March 4th, 1975, and sentenced to life imprisonment. He showed no emotion as the sentence was passed, although his wife burst into tears. Brooks was also appealed against his sentence, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without his being informed of his legal rights, but his appeal was dismissed in May of 1979. Both Henley and Brooks are serving life sentences. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Crazy. Damn right, it's crazy. Yo, um, you want to wrap this up? <laughs> yeah, hold on. Uh, those, for those of you wondering, uh, 
Elmer Wayne Henley is still alive. He's 66 years old. And he's still in prison. So, obviously. And then as for David Brooks... Mm-hmm. Hold on. David Brooks. David Owen Brooks. Hold on. David Owen Brooks. Oh, David Owen Brooks died in 2020. May 28th of 2020. Jesus. Yeah, he had one son. Also dead. Yeah, so that's the story of the real life Candyman. Dean Coral, may you rest in hell, you piece of shit. Piece of fucking shit. But yeah, obviously we're gonna have to wrap this up. Went a little over time, but that's all right. No, fuck it. It's a, it was a good episode. <clears throat> Turned out pretty good. Uh, you know, obviously, hopefully you guys liked it. Uh, we're going to try and get back in, well, me personally, I'm going to try and get back into some more serial killer stuff. Uh, so, yeah. Um, Yo, gee, I'd definitely like this format today. Yeah, this worked out really well. We're going to try and keep it this way uh, next time we tackle something like this. Because you know why? We we wasn't stumbling over our work, except for me. We wasn't stumbling oh, over our work. You're a fucking idiot. So. Uh, fuck you. But uh, anyways, yeah, we're going to head on out for the night. Uh, next week we'll be back. With a brand new episode, it's Chops Week, and we're going to have a special guest on, a real special guest, and I'm pretty hyped about. Hey, Cheetah, we were telling everyone, this special guest is so special, we will be recording. Yeah, we're not even recording in studio, that's how special this guy is. So we're bringing the studio to him. Definitely. So, I look forward I to that, it's going to be pretty awesome. I can't, wait for, I can't wait for his stories again. I heard him a hundred times, but fuck it. It's always great when the three of us get together. We always, you know, always, uh, you know, always pretty good conversation flowing. So it'll be nice to finally have him on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with that. And then the week after that, I think, I think I want to do the Marvel episode after that. Uh, uh, Don't tell anyone your plans yet. Why not? Fuck Fuck it. Fuck it. Why not? But. We also do, we also got an episode request from good old Fiden that we are going to start working on soon. Definitely going to get my brother back in here for that one because he loves that shit. I'm just going to tag along and just... So, uh, <clears throat> you know, just kind of wanted to give you guys a setup for, you know, what's to come the next couple weeks. So, that's what we got for you. But, I don't want to keep rambling on. I've done enough talking. I'm not going to talk for the rest of the night because my mouth hurts. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just real quick. Uh, Dean Coral, rotten fucking hell. David Owen Brooks, you're already rotten in hell. Elmer Wayne Henley, happy you got a conscience in the end, but you're still a piece of shit. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, that's it for me, so cheat out. Yeah, chop, um... Pretty much, do like I never heard about this dude until like Cheetah's like, hey, um, chop, um, we're gonna do silver color, an, an unknown silver color. Like, all right, whatever. I didn't realize it was the Candyman story. I, I heard a little bit about the Candyman story. Candyman. <laughs> all right, um, uh, chop out. Thanks for uh, riding along, losers. <laughs>